Welcome to the second season of Reset the Table. Russia's war in Ukraine affects agricultural markets and threatens food security for millions around the world. The UN Food System Summit is behind us, and COP27 and the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health are upon us. Join us as we examine solutions to food insecurity challenges around the world and right here at home. My guest today is Jacob Kurtzer, director of the CSIS Humanitarian Agenda. Jake has been with the Humanitarian Agenda for nearly three and a half years and brought to his program over a decade of experience with humanitarian aid organizations in countries experiencing humanitarian emergencies and on Capitol Hill. Jake joins me today for a conversation on the evolution of the humanitarian sector, changes he sees necessary to meet the scale of today's challenges, and successes of his own program in promoting effective responses to humanitarian crises. Jake, welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course, pleasure to speak with you. So I want to start our conversation today by setting the scene, by talking about the context in which we're having this conversation. When they met in Germany last month, G7 leaders noted, this is a quote, with grave concern, that in 2022, according to the UN Global Crisis Response Group on Food, Energy, and Finance, up to 323 million people globally will become acutely food insecure or are at high risk, marking a new high record. And in 2021, before Russia invaded Ukraine, close to 193 million people were acutely food insecure and in need of urgent assistance across 53 countries and territories, according to the 2022 Global Report on Food Crises. Again, to set the scene, can you describe the nature of the emergencies that are considered humanitarian emergencies today and explain how the scope and frequency of these emergencies has evolved over the past decade or so? Yeah, thanks. Historically, our understanding of and our professional sector try to focus on acute rapid onset crises, be they conflict or natural disaster. And the humanitarian response was to save lives and alleviate human suffering in the short term and then get out of the way. Unfortunately, over time, what we have seen is that for a variety of reasons, both related to the nature of the disaster or the nature of the conflict and to the nature of the international response mechanisms, is that leaving part has become extremely hard. That humanitarian responses have gone from short, you know, months or years to very, very long, protracted responses that in some cases, it's hard to figure out how they end. This is a result of a variety of factors. One is the nature of the conflicts themselves. If you think about the world wars, which were devastating for humanity, those conflicts were time limited. I mean, World War II was, what, six years kind of from start to finish. But conflicts now range for such a longer period of time, even if at a lower boiling point. So you think about Afghanistan, which has been at some level of armed conflict for you know, going on 50 years now. You think about the simmering tensions between Israel and Palestinians. You think about Somalia since 1992. And it puts the humanitarian sector in a very complicated position because the need to save lives and alleviate human suffering remains. But they're stuck in an enterprise that has at its foundations moral and ethical underpinnings. You find yourself as a humanitarian practitioner faced with a very difficult choice. Do you leave? 
because the nature of humanitarian action is not meant to be assistance in perpetuity and create a short-term increase in suffering when you have the capacity to respond? Or do you stay and continue to provide those services, but in some ways alleviate the pressure on the parties and other actors to deal with the conditions that are causing the human suffering? I noted at the beginning that you have spent a number of years yourself in countries experiencing humanitarian emergencies. Have you had to face any of those decisions yourself? I certainly was witness to and part of conversations about what is the future of this particular humanitarian operation. So sometimes from within organizations and sometimes from within a wider sectoral conversation. The humanitarian universe now is having a slightly different conversation about a way of working, which relates to the idea of connecting in some way humanitarian and development work so that there is a natural runway from one operation to the next. So you do an immediate response and do it in such a way and integrated with a longer term programming that can address root causes. And I think this has always been somewhat embedded in, in certain humanitarian activities. But I do think a fundamental question for humanitarian organizations is the second that you enter into a crisis, you create a safety valve of sorts and leaving is extremely hard. And it seems to me that given the way that the picture has now evolved, as you described at the onset, more crises, more people in need, a combination of factors, both climate, pandemic, and political crises, that the question of entering, the question of the response, is one that may necessitate a greater level of introspection on the part of humanitarian actors, both whether they should respond and if so, how, and what the plan is for once you're there. Because I do think that this question of when can you leave, you know, when can you ethically, politically, practically leave a humanitarian emergency as an organization with capacity, it becomes one that increasingly it seems like you can never leave, and that's a problem. So most development sectors are faced with a similar decision, energy, health, agriculture, et cetera. Do you think it's a different decision that humanitarian agencies have to make or similar? Well, I think it's I think it's slightly different because I do think there is a greater moral weight on this provision of humanitarian assistance. At its core, you're really talking about life or death, health and well-being. And they talk about definitions that include alleviating suffering. And so I do think that there's something of a heavier weight to this question, but I do, I understand that it manifests in various different sectors. And I don't think that it's not considered. I just don't think it's considered systematically. And so I certainly think that now is a, is an opportune time given the various shocks that are underway internal to the humanitarian system and external to rethink the way of doing business. So let's talk about that, about things that are shaping the sector. Going back a few years, the architecture of the U.S. government response has changed again over the past three years or so. What was the situation before these changed and how has the bureaucracy evolved since then? Yeah, I mean, one of the major changes has been the standing up of USAID's Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance, which combined legacy offices of Food for Peace and Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance. Food for Peace was founded under President Eisenhower in the 50s, and the OFDA is founded as part of the Foreign Assistance Act in the early 1960s by President Kennedy. And what you then ended up having happened was two separate bureaus within one agency both responding to humanitarian issues, but with different partners, with different funding models, and with different ways of doing business. And I think over time, it became clear that from an efficiency perspective, 
And from a coherence perspective, those authorities and actors and partners needed to be more coherent. And so they stood up a bureau that combined those two legacy bureaus. And I think anytime you stand up a new agency in any government, let alone one of the size of the United States government, there's going to be growing pains. But I certainly think the motivation is and the action is correct. And I think it reflects a wider sectoral understanding of there's a lot of internal competition and a lot of, you know, sort of duplication. And despite various different efforts at reform over the years, there's certainly a lot of coherence. And I think that the notion of a humanitarian circus still applies that, you know, the crisis breaks out and a whole bunch of people show up and sometimes everyone runs into the door at the same time and there's a logjam. And I think when I talk about the broader structural changes, I think one of the things that we're talking about is, does everyone need to rush at the same time? While there's certainly a substantially greater number of people in need now, which is shocking when you think about just general trends in human development, that we're also seeing increases the number of people in need. We also know more clearly than ever with the data to underpin it, there's always people present that can be the first responders. And so maybe we should be rethinking the way we do business instead of the international organizations showing up, setting up shop. And with all the implications that that has for the local dynamics, political and economic is really starting to get, you know, and I put myself in this category, get ourselves out of the way to the extent possible and try to put forward the people who are going to stay when the crisis ends. And that's the local first responders, civil society organizations be they NGOs, quote unquote, or just community groups that have identified a need and and sought to respond. The USG's reorganization is one thing and the sectoral reorganization is, is another. But I think this is a industry that should never be stagnant, that should always be trying to figure out how to reduce its size and not grow its size. So when I see people applauding presidents of NGOs for increasing their budget, to me, that's a disaster. You should have found ways to reduce your size by empowering local partners, um, having successful programs that reduced your need, patting yourself on the back for going from a $1 billion budget to $1.5 billion budget. We should not see those press releases in the future. Mm, Even in the context of rising needs? Yeah, I think even in the context of rising needs, because these organizations should be doing everything in their power to put their partners forward. U.S.-based NGOs or other big NGOs All of them work with local partners. There are places where you have to be the service provider yourself. You're not empowering a local organization or or an existing partner. But I think even the ICRC, for whom I worked and for whom I hold a great deal of esteem, every country in the world has a national Red Cross or Red Crescent Society. Every effort should be made now to continue to grow the capacities of those organizations, to continue to, and when I say grow the capacities, I mean identify the strengths that they have and, you know, give those organizations the resources to grow so that it's the Yemeni Red Crescent Society that's the bigger organization. Because then if that conflict stops, they're the ones that are going to be capable of responding to the earthquake or, you know, the other natural disaster when peace breaks out. And so the same thing, I think, with the NGOs, the same thing with UN agencies. I mean, really, the rising needs surely necessitate increased donor funding and they necessitate a short-term response. But that response doesn't mean growth of the organizations because nature pours a vacuum. And when you grow, it's very hard to shrink. Mm, Absolutely. Inside U.S. government and outside. 
Let's pivot to looking at your program specifically and the work that you're doing to promote effective responses to crises all over the world. Your own program's priorities include advancing avenues for increasing humanitarian access to suffering populations, particularly in armed conflict, unpacking challenges at the intersection of counterterrorism and humanitarian action and offering solutions, and finally, integrating humanitarian considerations more effectively into U.S. foreign policy and national security decision-making. In your three and a half years with your program, you've zeroed in on a number of areas that are in need of policy reform, smarter policies. There are particular countries that you have worked on reflecting the nature of today's crises. Can you give some color to your program's priorities by talking about crises that we're seeing today in Afghanistan, the Horn of Africa, Myanmar, Northeast Nigeria, Syria, etc.? Sure. I almost think about it in the reverse order that we've put them on our website, you know, so hey, maybe we should fix that. But I think I start with let's integrate humanitarian considerations into our foreign policy and national security thinking more effectively. And by that, I mean... The United States is far and away the largest donor to humanitarian action, and USAID and the colleagues at PRM at the State Department are extremely important and influential in promoting good humanitarian policy, good donorship, good action, you know, evolutions. Part of that is because of the size of our financial contributions. But I'm also not naive, and I think that U.S. foreign policy is driven by economic interests. It's driven by purely a sense of national security. There's a bipartisan thread of first and foremost, our job is to keep the country and our interests safe. My view is that effective humanitarian action can both be the right and moral and ethical thing to do, and if done well, effectively contribute to our economic well-being and our overall sense of national security. And it does not mean that we should see populations in need as economic vehicles, nor that we should see refugees or other populations in crisis as security threats. It means that we benefit from a safer, more stable and prosperous world. And the tip of the nonviolent spear would be the humanitarian peace. It's the first opportunity you have to reach people to begin to help rebuild lives and and pull people out of crisis. And so it then pivots to the second thing. For 20 years, the United States, since the attacks on September 11th, for 20 plus years, it's my view that our foreign policy and national security decision making has been viewed through a counterterrorism colored lens. And that informs our thinking about a whole bunch of different problem sets and informs our thinking about how we do development, how we do humanitarian assistance, how we look at economic assistance, how we look at countries, right? Is this a CT problem or is this another problem? And what that has meant is in a practical sense, counterterrorism considerations, be they top line or in arcane regulations, take precedence. They take precedence in our diplomatic relationships. They take precedence in who we partner with. You think about some of the regimes or the governments that we've made agreements with despite their own human rights or humanitarian violations because there was a counterterrorism benefit. But it has also meant that's created a lot of challenges for the humanitarian sector, particularly through a series of provisions that make it very difficult for humanitarian organizations to work in areas with the presence of designated groups. So we have spent a lot of time and effort focusing on pushing back against the narrative that the risk is there 
trying to argue for a much more realistic conversation. If you are going to work in those places, there is no way to work around organizations that have political security or bureaucratic control. So let's have a much more honest conversation about what it means to do humanitarian or development work in areas with the presence of those organizations and to try to find the policy solutions that meet the genuine interests of a bunch of different stakeholders, including humanitarian, but also the counterterrorism. And just if I may, one example of that is with respect to some of the challenges in moving money, what we call financial access. Because we have such strict restrictions on moving money to some of these places, what you end up having happening is people carrying cash, which is not a benefit to people who want to track the financial flows to terrorist organizations. We would be much better served having a restriction that allows the money to move in a transparent and open way that allows our analysts tracking the money, the comfort that they know where it's going, but also allows the humanitarian organizations the ability to move it fast and quickly and efficiently to people in need in their moment of need. Let's talk about these things in context. Given the challenges you just described, Afghanistan, Syria, Horn of Africa have all come to mind. Has there been success delivering humanitarian aid in these contexts, given the challenges you're outlying? If you would start, say, maybe with the Horn of Africa, um, one of the case studies of when the situation became most acute in terms of the intersection of these, these interests was the Somalia famine in 2011, where designating al-Shabaab as a specially designated terrorist organization, FTO, coincided with a drought and a famine. It's not as clear-cut as A led to B, but ultimately al-Shabaab kicked out NGOs NGOs were unwilling to operate because of both the security risk, but also because of this perceived concern about being in violation of U.S. domestic law. And it created a major obstacle. And ultimately, what ended up happening was exemptions and licenses that allowed humanitarian organizations to work. So what we have now in the current situation in Somalia and elsewhere is a process by which NGOs can apply for licenses to get from the Treasury Department, the authority to work with organizations or the authority to make certain transactions that may involve designated groups that they would be considered permissible under even despite the existing sanctions. But the problem that the organizations themselves have is twofold. One is that doesn't address other legal prohibitions that are on the books that are not enforced by the Department of Treasury. And two, they still rely on commercial vendors and banks to process those transactions. And we've seen that that part of the process manifest very acutely in Yemen and Syria and elsewhere, where banks don't want to process the transactions because it's an area deemed high risk or it's near a group that's deemed a risky actor. So what we've spent is a lot of time finding workarounds but we haven't spent as much time of getting the obstacle out of the way. And to me, that's where that's the next step of the solution set here is let's go back to first principles and start from the premise that the humanitarian action should be permitted and when necessary, maybe create additional restrictions. But right now we're starting from a it's not permitted and here are the places where it is permitted. And that becomes time, you know, time consuming, arduous, costly. We've also seen the problem manifest acutely in Afghanistan. It's a slightly different challenge, but in brief, with the with the Taliban taking over as the de facto authorities, operations of the central bank became considered to be, you know, restricted by the sanctions. 
United States holding a lot of their money because of court cases in the U.S. And so you have this liquidity crisis in the country in addition to the challenge for humanitarian organizations to deal with what we call like a de facto ministry. So if you want to work in Afghanistan, you have to work with the Ministry of Agriculture, the Ministry of Refugees, the Taliban in power, the question of whether or not those ministries are considered sanctioned entities. So again, Treasury has really been very forward leaning under this administration in terms of providing the licenses to work and providing the FAQs and holding the dialogue with the NGOs and their partners. But you're starting with this is a prohibited action and we're making space for you to do it. And I think that continues to give a lot of organizations pause. And then you look at the global picture and you sort of say, well, we should really think about trying to reduce, um, you know, where possible these these obstacles, given the expansive need. What would be necessary politically for this change to happen, as you're describing, for the presumption to be that this activity is permitted, not this activity is not permitted? Where would that need to happen? Is that an, an action within Congress? Is it within executive agencies? Where is that? Well, I would say since we use the word politically, I would say what we would need is a detente of sorts, right, where you need a number of senators and members of the House from both sides of the aisle to say, we're coming together to give the administration cover that this is not going to be a political football. And we actually have had it once or twice, specifically in Yemen. The previous administration on its last day designated the Houthis in Yemen as a foreign terrorist organization. And what I would describe as a very cynical ploy. And I think that Cynical is not a political attack here because imposing a foreign terrorist organization on the last day of your administration when you had four years to do so, that is an overtly cynical act. And what they did was they extremely complicated the political environment for the incoming administration. And you had a number of senators from both sides of the aisle immediately say, we can't have this because they identified that this would have a massive impact on the humanitarian response in one of the world's most challenging humanitarian contexts. And Biden administration ultimately revoked that designation. And so I do think there is a sense on both sides of the aisle that understands why this is a problem, but still remains, I think, a fairly toxic issue to be seen as soft on terrorism. But I do think if there was a bipartisan consensus of sorts that said, yeah, this is a problem and it necessitates a solution, then there are actually things that Congress could do to alleviate the problem. But more importantly, there are things that the executive branch could do almost with the stroke of a pen. One of those things relates to the executive order under which these designations are made. The legislative authority under which presidents can designate groups as sanctioned entities and impose these restrictions includes a humanitarian exemption. And that has been regularly waived by presidents since George Bush in the aftermath of the attacks of September 11th. So if the executive order started with humanitarian assistance is exempted, then immediately organizations would have a much easier time. You would be starting from this place of permissiveness. There are other more complicated lifts to fix the policy. There's the material support for terror provision in law, which says that, you know, you cannot provide any support to a designated organization, which has been interpreted by the Supreme Court so broadly to even include advice such that an NGO can't go and give a training to a designated group on compliance with international law because that would be considered giving them advice, which they could use to benefit their political agenda or otherwise. So fixing that material support for terror provision under law to exempt the provision of food and medicine and humanitarian advice, which would be consistent with the United States' obligations under the Geneva Conventions, 
would be another incredibly important fix. That's a heavier lift. But there are a lot of other steps that can happen along the way, starting with the executive order, but also just in terms of how our executive branch agencies communicate with each other internally and amongst that it would go a long way into improving our humanitarian response. So you were anticipating my own last question, which is, you know, I mentioned you've been with CSIS for three and a half years. You've worked in the humanitarian sector for over 10 years. Looking down the road, another three and a half years, another 10 years, what changes would do you hope to see by that point? Anything that you haven't mentioned yet? Well, I hope that the program has closed and becomes a historical look back on how we solved all the humanitarian problems in the world. To me, the two points that we that you started with or the two points about the program, I think, would be where I would like to see the U.S. government, you know, and, and CSAS in the future. Right. One is when we look at situations of, you know, hard geopolitics or conflict, one thing that frustrates me is if you read like the analysis of in the fall, we were talking about the potential for a confrontation between China and Taiwan. And you would read these think pieces from think tanks or in, you know, media outlets. There would be 10,000 words on how we get to war and what the consequences are. And like one sentence at the end of, and there will be massive humanitarian need. And it's like, we can't, we can't think of this as an afterthought or as something that we hand off to the humanitarians to deal with. That's why we have 50 years long protracted conflicts, because we're not considering these issues at the start. So I think, you know, seeing places like CSAS really integrate that, not just in a standalone program, but throughout the thinking of our geographic and other programs, I think would be, to me, would be a success. I think we haven't done as much, and I think there's a lot more to do about helping the Department of Defense start to integrate that kind of thinking. They have a branch that does HADR. They have they do a lot of thinking, but it's not just humanitarian response, but humanitarian also is about civilian protection. And so are we doing the best we can as a country and as a, not me, but the military is doing the best it can to reduce civilian harm in the places that we have military action? Have we been able to support the ambitions of leadership at USAID and the State Department now, which has committed to localizing humanitarian action, to getting more money out the door to partners? If we can play a tiny part in providing the push towards those ambitions, where the United States is still a leading donor and our NGOs, US-based NGOs, are still doing great work, but really we are starting to get out of the way and, and letting the partners who will stand behind, who know what's best in those contexts, lead the way, then that's what I'd like to see in in a few years down the road is where we could be that would be a sign of progress. My friend and colleague, Jacob Kircher, Director of the Humanitarian Agenda at CSIS, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter CSIS Food. Until next time.